Welcome to Portrait of a Londoner. In this episode, we talk to Kenya Hunt. Kenya Hunt is an American writer and editor based in London. She has worked for major publications on both sides of the Atlantic, and her previous roles include Deputy Director of Elle UK, and she's currently Fashion Director at Grazia Magazine. Kenya's new book, Girl, which was released in November, is a collection of essays on what it means to be a black woman in our time, and is a celebration of black women told through her own story and through the voices of some of her peers. 2020 has been quite the year, and you've released Girl, which is a beautiful collection of essays. Can you talk about why this book was so important to you? The book was really important to me. I mean, I started writing it, you know, before COVID was even a thought. And um, I embarked on it as, a, you know, a chance to make sense of my life, of my experiences over the past 10 years, um, to, to, to also make sense and explore and celebrate a, um, a moment in history that I was living and participating in, watching Black women around me, a black woman I, that I didn't know, um, but felt a kinship with and um, loved and followed from afar, who were really just, you know, rising in terms of visibility, but also just driving real change in their respective areas and um, shaping culture and powering movements and and just really achieving, you know, incredibly historic things. But I also wanted to really look at what that meant for our day-to-day lives and also the nuances of our lives and just participate in this this expansion that I was witnessing of, you know, who we are and, and what we can be and how our lives can look. Did you know who you were writing this book for when you started? And do you think this has changed during the course of recent events? When I started from the very beginning, I was always quite clear in my head that I was writing the book for us. Um, and I w- would often say that to my agent and later to my editor um, once the book was sold. But, you know, I very much had this phrase in my head for us, by us, meaning, you know, this book was very much written for for bl- Black women, you know, the women in my life, the women I know, the women I don't. Um, but I do hope that it strikes a chord with people, regardless of race or gender, because it does speak to, you know, there are some very universal strains within the book, you know, in terms of um, a search for purpose, you know, a desire and a need for empathy. And I think those are things that, you know, anyone can relate to. It feels like there's a real shift happening. And um, we're living in a social media age where there are lots of hashtags around black girl magic and black excellence, which can sometimes take away from the true meaning of the words. What are your thoughts on this, particularly given the the events of this year with Black Lives Matter? Well, you know, it's so interesting because Black Girl Magic is a hashtag and a movement has existed for quite a number of years now, as has, you know, a lot of these ideas like Black Excellence, um, Black Lives Matter is a movement. You know, so many of these um, movements that originated uh, within Black communities and were powered by social media you know, these have been a conversation for quite some time and they hardly felt new, but I think that they took on a new meaning in recent years, particularly this one um, in which we saw so many historic firsts happening mm-hmm. you know, to, to look at how black women really helped swing the election in the States and how black women were so pivotal in putting Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in office 
and the fact that you know Kamala Harris is the America's first woman vice president, but also she's you know she's a black woman. She's the first black American woman vice president, um, and also the 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 first vice president of you know South Asian descent as well. And and black women were really you know black women did that essentially. And so and then also just so many of the breakout stories in the year. You know, looking at Stacey Abrams, you know, a politician out of Georgia who helped register more than 800,000 voters to swing Georgia blue for the first time in decades, or looking at, you know, how Black Lives Matter, which is has been an, an incredible social justice movement that's, you know, been in, in existence for years, you know, a few years now, to see how it really just took on a whole new life this year. Um, to become what the New York Times called the the largest historic, uh, the largest, uh, you know, justice movement in American history, you know, which is huge. And that was founded by black women and black women were very much, you know, out there in the streets protesting and rallying and organizing. And so but also, you know, we're so often written out of our own stories and pushed to the margins. And so, yeah, it's just been a beautiful thing to see. Black women get our flowers in a lot of areas after having been overlooked for so long. Um, And so I just would have never imagined when I started writing the book that the year would have unfolded as it has and that, you know, Black women would have been so pivotal in, in shaping the direction, you know, and the culture and the politics of this year. I love a hashtag. I mean, I love the way it can really you know, shine a light on on things and movements and people who deserve to to receive the shine and that it can raise awareness and that it can, you know, really help galvanize and rally, um, you know, entire groups of people and also be an organizing tool. I think the danger with some of the hashtags is that, it, it, you know, in the process of it gaining steam that we can sometimes just lose the meaning of, you know, what we're talking about and and subjects can become watered down and then things can just become marketing and PR and buzzwords that don't really mean anything and then just begin to feel hollow or they can just become complicated and they take on a whole new life of their own and they twist and turn like the term woke, which I read about in the book where, you know, it starts in one place and then winds up in a completely different place where you have so many people, you know, using it in in different ways and contexts and things just completely change meaning. And then all of a sudden we just don't know what it means anymore sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so, but I think black girl magic, black excellence, you know, these are, I mean, these are movements that show us who we are and should be celebrated. But like anything, you know, there's complications that come with that as well, particularly when they become, you know, as large and widely used um, as they are, and oftentimes, sometimes weaponized as well. So, you know, I think anything that sort of reaches that level of um, mass usage can, you know, become complicated. You are currently fashion director at Grazia magazine, and you've worked in the industry for some time, both here and in the US. Can you tell me a bit about what it was like for you starting out in the industry and some of the challenges that you faced? I think for me, starting out in the industry, it was just, you know, quite an isolating experience, as it was for so many of my peers. You know, we 
you know, so many of my girlfriends who are in similar positions as myself, we, we just came up in a period where we were often the only one in the room and not feeling comfortable with that and not wanting that to be the status quo. And so you're just coming up and navigating circumstances in which you don't always necessarily feel welcome, or maybe you are, and people just aren't necessarily you know, they're not always comfortable with your presence or, you know, just, you know, you find yourself in situations where you're navigating someone's preconceived notions of who you are and what your capabilities are and, um, and, and what your career trajectory should look like and things like that. So yeah, it was quite an isolating experience, but at the same time, I've also, you know, made some lifelong friends as a result of being in this industry. And, you know, it's filled with a lot of good people as well. I mean, I think fashion can get a real bad rap because it has such a poor track record when it comes to a number of things like race and inclusion and representation or, you know, the, the way that it it um, hardly represents women of um, varying races and ages and sh- body shapes and sizes. Um, but at the same time, you know, it is filled with good people as well who are genuinely trying to do the right thing. And so I think I learned over the course of, you know, the many years that I've been working in the industry now is that it's, um, it's just about, uh, there's this phrase that, um, you know, a woman I admire greatly, who's, you know, been a real key figure in my life, Bethan Hardison always talks about how activism must stay active. And so I think, you know, I've learned that it's really about really sticking with these issues that we feel passionate about and, you know, the areas that we see as needing to change, like really just dedicating the real time to making sure that change happens because fashion inherently tends to rest on like the incoming and outgoing of trends and topics and things like that. And so the way to sort of get to a place where we can exist in this space and not feel, you know, like we are in isolation is to just really kind of make sure that we're, there's a, a constant dialogue and, a, and an awareness of, you know, what needs to change and what we need to do to get there. In the book, you talk about Fran Sanders' anthology, The Black Woman. And one part that really struck with me was when you you talked about, and I paraphrase, it's not enough to be good at something, that we must be constantly proving ourselves. And I think it's resonated with me a lot on so many levels, this feeling of having to work that much harder than my peers in all aspects of work, I think. Was this your experience and how did you navigate this? I quote Issa Rae in uh, my chapter, Bad Bitches, because, you know, she said this um, thing in this interview that really resonated with me. And she said, we don't just get to be normal. And that echoed, you know, sentiments that girlfriends and relatives of mine have been saying for years. We don't get the luxury of just being regular. Um, And so I definitely felt like um, when I was coming up, I had to work extra, extra hard because, you know, um, you know, because I was in, you know, a black American woman, but not just that because I was from Virginia or because, you know, I was an outsider in in a number of different ways. Like I didn't necessarily come up through, you know, a a prestigious fashion school or like come up through that pipeline of like, you know, like insular sort of connected people. Um, Again, the fashion industry is filled with outsiders though, regardless of race or gender. Um, But that's, but that said, I think as black women, you know, we we do find ourselves in situations in which we're being confronted by someone's narrow expert expectations of us. Yeah. And as a result, that definitely impacts the way that we 
live our lives. And so I, you know, would love to just um, see us in a, in a place where we can just be and, you know, just and just revel in that as opposed to um, constantly being sort of confronted with, you know, varying and ever evolving expectations of, you know, how our lives should look. And so, yeah, I mean, I think those anthologies, like the one that you mentioned, and other ones like um, the Daughters of Africa, the New Daughters of Africa, the, the two of them. I mean, I love them so much because you can really open a book and really get a sense of the full breadth of how our lives um, can look. When you go to, into a bookshop, you see shelves and shelves and shelves of books authored by white women and, and white men. And it's not a headline, you know, it's not a thing. And so I think I would just love to see us, you know, even in the literary space where we're, you know, we're just, we have the freedom to just write about our stories and they just be this, our stories. I can only write to the particularity like of my truth, um, you know, which is what I've done. But yeah, so I think it's just about, yeah, I mean, that that constant longing for, you know, a place in a life where we can, you know, we can just be like free of sub subtext or politization. Kenya, you founded Room in 2015, which is a grassroots mentoring initiative dedicated to creating space in the fashion industry for marginalized groups, as you felt that there was a lack of representation. Can you tell us a bit about Room? Yes. I mean, Room came out of um, a series of dinners I was having with girlfriends of mine who were all in similar positions. I mean, you know, one of the things is when you are in a working situation where you are the only, and then you witness someone else who's another only elsewhere, you tend to sort of bond quite quickly over that shared experience. And so throughout my working life, I've always had a network of women in my life who were in similar positions at other titles. And we would just you know, compare notes, you know, we'd be girlfriends and we'd give each other support through the experience of, you know, rising up the ranks at, you know, in one city or another or at one title or another. And at, with Room, I was here in the UK. And when I moved here, I was quite shocked by how homogeneous publishing was and is and, and how um, homogeneous fashion, you know, was and to a, a certain extent still is. And we just after having, you know, getting together for our, you know, periodic dinners and things, I thought it'd be really nice to pay it forward because we were, um, you know, all we we had these great positions and, you know, we were working in these really amazing places. And I would oftentimes like do talks or panel discussions. And afterwards, there'd always be like that, that, that one um university student or recent graduate who would just ask, like, how can I get my foot in the door? And I thought it'd be great to just, instead of us just meeting for dinner all the time, to actually, like, meet and invite young students and graduates and allow them to, to network with us and learn from us and also for us to learn from them and us help create opportunities for them to to get a foot in our respective industries and rise up the ranks. And so it initially started out uh, a little bit broader where we were representing fashion and publishing. And then there were a few of us who were in tech and other industries. And then I, with time, focused it on fashion and it became really a group that's uh, helping to, helping people from marginalized backgrounds get access 
to the fashion industry and get a foothold and then also get the support network that they need to be successful in it and to remain, you know, in that pipeline and progress from there. Can you tell me how your parents have influenced you? My parents have influenced me a tremendous amount. And it's only recently now at this particular stage in my life as a mother, now that I have two, that I'm really developing a fuller appreciation of that because it's hard. I mean, it's been really hard mothering children through this year from COVID to George Floyd to Breonna Taylor. I mean, through climate change. And so when I look back on the fact that, you know, I grew up in Virginia in the South, I had a perfectly lovely and enjoyable childhood. But as an adult, adult reflecting back, you know, there were moments where we'd be, we see conservative, like Confederate flags and, you know, expressions of, you know, um, racism in places. And just growing up, I didn't really, it was around, but I didn't really see it or recognize it for what it was. And I think it's because my parents did such a great job of creating a safe and loving space for me and really just instilling in me the sense that you can just go out and do anything. Like, why not? Like, I always grew up with this feeling of, you know, you know, why not? And so I think I really just have the deepest gratitude to my parents for instilling that love in me. And I think, you know, they kind of raised me to be relatively okay with the idea of risk because, you know, they told me I can always come home if it doesn't work out or if it fails. And so I really just, as a mother, I'm really working hard to follow their example and do the same with my two boys because I'm just, I'm so grateful to them um, cause I understand how hard it is now. It's not an easy thing. Parenting, like it really does take a village. Like you need people around you and a support network. Hello, I'm Mike. I'm the producer of Portrait of a Londoner. Whilst I'm editing podcasts, I quite like to have a beer. And this episode of Portrait of a Londoner is sponsored by Brixton Brewery. At the moment, I have a low voltage session IPA from Brixton Brewery open. It's a really easy drinking beer with a powerful hop hit. And yeah, I just really like this one. Thank you very much to Brixton Brewery for sponsoring this episode. Always drink responsibly. So Kenya, we've been running a series on joy, um, given the year's events and all that's been happening. And we've been talking to people about how they find joy um, and what they do to keep their spirits up, particularly during difficult times like the year we've had. Can I start by asking you how you create joy for yourself? Um, I try to create joy for myself by just doing more of what it, whatever it is that makes me happy. And so I often have to just actively sort of stop and think for a second about the the times when I was hap- happiest. Um, I think specifically this year, because this year has been it's been a lot to navigate. So there have been times where I've had to actively stop and breathe and think, okay, when am I happiest? What am I happiest doing? And so usually that involves like being with my two boys and my husband and, or writing. Like I'm, I'm usually the happiest when I'm doing one of those things. And so for me, joy means just trying to find more time to, to do that since, you know, we don't necessarily have the luxury of like freely roaming around to do a lot of the other things that spark joy in my life, like going to museums and surrounding myself with art, 
or like, you know, being being able to travel or just going to showrooms and meeting like lots of designers and hearing what's behind their creative process and things. I can't do a lot of those things that I find so stimulating right now because we've been in and out of lockdown. Um, so for me, uh, you know, just having time without distraction with my boys and um, my husband or having time to just write like that's, you know, that's been really a kind of joyful thing for me. If you were going to put something on and listen to it and play music wise that you think, yeah, something that would lift your mood, what music would that be? There is so much. Funnily enough, we have a um, a playlist on, on Spotify that I'll be um, posting about soon, which features all the songs that I either listened to during the experience of writing or the contributors to the book did as well. Um, and so a, a lot of the, the music is in that playlist. But it's lately it's just been anything that's kind of quite upbeat that um, I can dance to or... Um, or just, you know, kind of like sway back and forth too. And a lot of them are just really soulful, amazing black women. I mean, I love, 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 love Jasmine, Jasmine Sullivan, who is, um, you know, a a singer who hasn't really gotten her flowers in the way that she needs to. And they are so long overdue. And then I love uh, Ari Lennox, who is amazing. She's the song Shea Butter Baby that I listen to all the time. It's just a giggle. Like her album is so soulful and just makes me laugh and giggle at the same time. And um, or like, you know, I'll play, you know, Aretha Franklin and Donny Hathaway and a lot of like the older greats. Um, And then for my boys, like my husband and I are constantly trying to educate them to the music we listened to growing up. So, you know, for my husband, it's a lot of like, you know, punk rock and certain certain hip hop artists. Whereas like with me lately, I've just been like um, introducing my eight year old to music by like Nas. It's funny you mentioned Nas because before talking to you, it got me thinking back to when I used to really buy magazines as a teen in the 90s and loving Vibe magazine and The Source and all of those publications and really being excited by them. And then for a long time, I just didn't buy magazines. Um, and, you know, maybe that was because I just didn't, I just didn't engage with them. But more recently, I have started buying the likes of Vogue again, because I'm really excited by what Edward Enninful is doing there and what you're doing at Grazia. And I'm just seeing some brilliant editorial shoots. Um, yeah, so it just got me thinking about that, really. It's so funny. Someone else made a similar comparison because I came up, loving and living for magazines and like just really looking up to all those editors you know you had danielle smith at vibe and you know greg tate was there and then um there was a source in double xl and they were, it was a real really incredible moment in terms of black creativity and magazine publishing and um and so it's yeah i think it's just really incredible you know when i look and see what edward's doing at vogue in particular but also that you know there's so many editors and image makers and stylists who are coming through across publishing as a whole right now. It's, it's, it's amazing to see. And so it also, it just gets me excited as well. Cause then when I meet like students who are coming up, you know, young university students and graduates who get so excited, who are looking up to it and like really engaging with the moment, it reminds me of myself and how like, you know, all the magazines you mentioned really spoke to me and were basically what kind of like helped like seal it for me and my desire to, to, to work in this space. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us, we are on all socials. We're on Instagram at Portrait of a Londoner. We're on Facebook, Portrait of a Londoner. And we're on Twitter at Portrait Podcast. You can also email us, portraitofalondoner at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate, review and subscribe.